theyeshiva.net. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for gracing us with your presence this morning. And today's class is dedicated by Rabbi Yisrael Heber in memory of Harav Rabbi Yosef Aryeh Leib, known as Yossi Heber, Zechroin Levracha, Tehei Nishmasei Tzrura B'Tzrar HaChaim, and may he be an eternal source of blessing, light, inspiration to his loved ones, his family, and all of the Jewish people. And thank you so, so much. And may his memory continue to inspire you, Rabbi Yisrael, and all of us. Amen. I want to address today a question that anybody who comes across this question, and really any serious or even not serious student comes across this question, is bothered by it. And uh, as they say in Yiddish, as mekan gain gleich, favosdaf mekan krum, which means if you can go straight, I don't know how to translate that, huh? if you can go the straight path, why do you have to take the crooked, deviant path? If I could say the truth, why do I have to lie? Even if you don't want to call it a lie, why do I have to say half-truths, cover-ups, we all know how uncomfortable it is when people are telling us half-truths, they're not transparent, they're dishonest, especially when there's absolutely no necessity for it. And this is the question we want to address today. And that is, anybody who follows closely the entire story of the Egyptian exile and exodus sees that never, not even one time, does Moshe Rabbeinu communicate to Parai, the king of Egypt, the full truth about what the Jewish people need to do, want to do, and what their plans are? Now let me show it to you inside. If you look at your source sheets, whoever didn't get a source sheet, you have more on the Bima. This takes us to Shmois Peregimel, which is actually last week's portion, Exodus chapter 3. Moshe Rabbeinu was summoned for the first time by the Rebbeinu Shalaylam by Hashem at the burning bush and he asks of him to become the redeemer of the Jewish people, to become the leader and take the Jewish people out of Egypt. In Shmois Peri Gimel, Pasuk Yud Ches, standing at the burning bush before Moshe ever went back to Egypt, Hashem gives him his mission statement and he says, and I quote, Ubasa ata v'zikne Yisrael el melech Mitzrayim. You and the elders of the Jewish people will come to the king of Egypt. And you're going to tell him these words. Hashem ha'ivrim nikra aleinu. God, the God of the Ivrim, Hashem, the God of the Hebrews, nikra aleinu, chanced upon us. He encountered us. Va'ata. And now, Allow us to please take a journey. For three days, we want to walk for three days, go into the desert for a three-day holiday so that we could offer offerings to our God. This is the message to Parai. All the Jewish people are asking for is a three-day holiday, a three-day vocation, chafesh, as they say in Hebrew, to be able to go offer offerings to their God. This is what Hashem has commanded Moshe the first moment at the burning bush. Of course, this is not what they wanted. <laughs> they wanted to go free, as Hashem told Moshe. You're going to go free, you have another country to live in, you have a promised land, 
You have an eternal homeland that I have bequeathed and inherited to your forefathers, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. The true story he repeats to Moshe again and again. But the message to Parai? All we're asking for is three days. As you would think, okay, maybe it was just the first time. Maybe he was making it a little easy for Moshe. Don't worry, you're not asking big requests. But as we continue the story, it continues, the same theme, the same pattern, continues again and again and again. At the end of Parsha Shmois, in chapter 5, you have it in your source. Shmois Perik, hey, the first one was what Hashem told them to do. Now let's see what happened. Shmois Perik, Exodus chapter 5, begins with Moshe and Aaron actually coming to Parai. They came to Parai. God said, send my nation, let my people go. And let them celebrate to me. Let them offer celebrations to me in the desert. And Parai responds and says, Who is God? Who is God that I should pay heed to his voice? I don't know who God is, and I will not let the Jewish people leave. And what's their message? They say to him, Exactly what Hashem said, the God of the Hebrews chanced upon us. Allow us to take a trek, to take a hike. Three days. We just want to go derech, the amount of space that it takes to go for three days. We want to take a three-day hike into the desert and offer offerings to our God. And Pari gets annoyed and upset and agitated and he increases the quota upon the Jewish people. They don't tell him that they want to leave and not come back. All they say is, we want to go for three days. Then the plagues start befalling Parai and Egypt. And each plague becomes worse than the previous plagues. At some point it seems like Parai is about to acquiesce and surrender and leave and go and then he takes back and he again surrenders. And each time, time and time again, when Moshe says, what do we want? All we want is, we want to leave for three days. And to give another example, when you have, let's say, the Makkah of Oroiv, you have Dam, Tzvardeya, Kinim, Oroiv, the fourth plague was the plague of the wild animals that came and befell, came into Egypt and maimed and killed many of them. And Pare surrendered. This is in Shmois Perik Ches. This is already Exodus chapter 8, Parshas Vayir. Pare says, go, go. Go to your God. Go give Him your offerings. <clears throat> but just do it here. Do it here in the land. And Moshe says, we can't. We're going to slaughter animals that are deified by the Egyptians. They're going to stone us to death. We can't do it here. So what does Moshe ask again? This is Shmois Perik Ches, Pasuk Chav Gimel, Exodus 8.23. I quote, Derech shloishes yamim neilich bamidbar. Just allow us to go for three days in the desert. We will offer the offerings as he will tell us. Pari agrees, go. Just pray that the animals leave. And he agrees and he acquiesces. And then of course, his heart becomes hardened again. And he retracts. 
And indeed, indeed, we see what happens at the end. At the end, after all of the ten plagues, including the tenth plague, Marcus Pcheris, the death of the firstborn, finally, Parai surrenders completely. Till then, he's back and forth and he's negotiating. The wives know, the males, yeah, the children know, the fathers, yeah, the people, not the cattle, stay here, go out. But it's only always negotiating the same issue. Three days or no three days. Nothing more. That's the whole negotiation. And finally, at the end, Pari said, go! And the Jews left. Pari himself was intimidated and frightened and overwhelmed, and he actually sent the Jewish people out. And after the firstborns die in the middle of the night, what happens is, Pari himself wakes up in the middle of the night and is screaming, and he calls to Moshe and Aaron, he says, next week's parasha, parasha, leave, leave, take you, take your children, go serve God, as you discussed. In other words, in his mind, what were they doing? They were going for three days. Take your cattle, take your sheep, bless me, and leave. And they leave. They leave. They're gone. They're out of Egypt. And at the beginning of the parsha after Bashalach, it says, and I quote the Pasuk, and you have it in your source sheet, the next source. This is already Shmois Perik Yud Dalit, Exodus 14. What happens? What happens is, Vayugad Lemelech Mitzrayim Kivorachom. This is Exodus chapter 14, verse 5, Perik Yud Dalit, Pasuk hey. It was told to the king Kivorachom. That the nation fled. They escaped. Really? You were screaming that they should leave. You woke up in the middle of the night and you said, Get out of this place. This is called escape. If this is called running away, then what's not running away? <laughs> if somebody tells you, please go, I give you permission, bless me, take whatever you want, that's called running away? That's not running away. Huh? Huh? <laughs> oh. So how do you explain it? It does not make sense. And suddenly Pari's heart is transformed. And he says, what did we do? We allowed the Jewish people to go free. What is this? They escaped, they fled. And that's when he decides, of course, to pursue them. And the final encounter at the Yamsef at the Red Sea will occur after, shortly afterwards, a few days afterwards. What is the meaning? They escaped. So Rashi says, it's very simple. It's very simple. <laughs> Three days passed and they weren't coming back. <laughs> of course he agreed that they should leave. He agreed that they should leave according to the terms that Moshe always set out, which was three days. Three days passed. They didn't have in mind to return. Oh, this is escape. Now it was an escape. Now he starts pursuing them. The Ebenezer puts it in your source sheets, Rabbeinu Avram Ebenezer, who was a contemporary of Rashi. Rashi lived in, the, in, in France. Rabbi Nezer lived in Spain and traveled the world. Rabbi Avram Ebenezer writes, Az Choshav Paray. Then Paray realized, He called Moshe Ba'arma. Everything that Moshe spoke to him about was deceitful. Moshe was deceiving him. Ba'arma means he was deceitful. This was a sly trick. He ain't daitoilis boyach. Poetic. He never had in mind to slaughter. He had in mind to flee. Not so poetic in English. But in Hebrew, Ebenezer was a great, great poet. He was one of the greatest poets of, of the golden 
the golden age in Spain, Turazov, and uh, besides being a linguist and a, and a sage and a rabbi and a doctor and an astronomer and a physician and a great commentator on the Tanakh, he was also an extraordinary poet, Rabbi Navram Ibn Ezra. He wore many hats. He had five children, and uh, one of his children converted to Islam. His name was Yitzchak, and he has a poem that he wrote on this child after he converted. It's a heart, heart-wrenching poem. The story is that his, his, his son came back to Yiddishkeit. But uh, extraordinary is poetry. But I'm just saying it's interesting how he puts it. He never wanted to offer any offerings in the desert. He wanted to run. He doesn't want to come back to Egypt. Suddenly, Para is like, wow, he has an epiphany. Moshe was never honest with me. And here is the obvious question. As I started this year, Let me explain to you the question. Why couldn't Moshe tell Paroi the truth? Paroi, we want to leave. One second, Hindi. We want to leave. We're never coming back. We don't belong to you. We're not your slaves. We have another country. We have another vision. We have another destiny. We have another vocation. You might say, Paroi won't listen. I'm not letting you guys go. But as Moshe saw again and again, Paroi wasn't even agreeing to a three-day vocation. Even that wasn't working. In other words, without the ten plagues, Padre would have not agreed for them to leave three days, and he did not. What made him agree? Not that it was only three days. That he had no choice. At some point, the man was desperate. At least then, Moshe could have said the truth. When Padre said, get out, get out, we're all dying. Moshe said, no problem. But you know, we're not coming back. And we can assume when you're desperate, he would have said, go. He had no choice. It's not like he had a choice. In fact, if he would have felt he had a choice, like he did till then, he wouldn't let them even go for three days. So why create a story? Hashem told Moshe initially, he's not going to let you go. Even three days, he's not going to let you go. He will not let you go. And the only reason he will let you go at the end is because he will be desperate. He will be broken. His empire will be broken. Well, if that's the situation, spill the beans. Be transparent. Be open. Why deceive him for no purpose till the end? And it's a question on many levels. First of all, you're a messenger of God. We don't have definitions for Hashem in Judaism. The only definition we have for God in Judaism is that we have no definition. It's the only definition. But one of the closer definitions is that the Gemara says in Mesech Shabbos and Yuma Chaisamai Shalakadish Baruchu Emes. The seal of Hashem is truth. Truth, truth, truth. In the Bracha for Torah we say, Shanasalanu Torah's Emes, the Torah of truth. Very good. Moshe Emes, Visayrasai Emes. Moshe is the embodiment of truth. And yet here, in the first mission, and most important mission of Moshe Rabbeinu, to liberate the slaves and turn them into a nation, he was not saying the truth. At best, it was a half-truth, or it was even a deviation of truth. Number one. Number two, it wasn't even necessary. <laughs> As I said, 
Pare didn't agree even to a three-day deal. The only reason he agreed at the end is because he was crushed. Tell him everything. Number three. God displayed for the first and almost only time in history such supernatural events to make this happen. So the whole style of Mitzrayim was no inhibitions. Nature was put aside for a display of divine, the divine supernatural ability in such an ambiance. Why do you have to dray a cup? If the whole way they got out of Egypt was through one dreidel and another dreidel, how do you say a dreidel in English? Doesn't work in English, huh? A dreidel. Through one twist and another twist and another twist, like you're squirreling your way out of Egypt. Okay. So saying half-truth is another way of, of manipulating the situation verbally. But the whole Yitzhiya's Messiah was done with such a grand display of God's supernatural power. He says to Bar, you'll know that there's no one like me in this world. I am the sole ruler of the world. So why drea cup? Why cover-ups? Why not full exposure? And there's another element here. And that is, what did it do to the Jewish people? What did it do psychologically to the Jewish people when they knew that Moshe keeps on telling Parai, we're going for three days. So now when they left, and they were slaves, and they were frightened, and they keep on saying, let's go back to Egypt, what did it do for their own self-esteem? And their own serenity when they knew what's going to happen after three days when Parai finds out that we're not coming back. And indeed, their concerns materialized. This is something that many of the Mepharshim have to deal with because it's a very obvious question. And it really, it triggers you because it's every single time when Hashem summons Moshe when they come to Pari, later when he comes to Pari, all the way at the end, and you're wondering, just say the truth. The Ebenezer writes, the Ebenezer writes, let's see the Abarbanel, the way he phrases the question, the next source. Abarbanel Gimel HaShayla Sheish Esrei, the 16th question of Don Yitzchok Abarbanel, the great, the great Spanish finance minister who lived in the 15th century and left Spain with the Jewish exile of Spain in 1492 from King Ferdinand and Isabella. He refused to stay in Spain despite the offer. And in his following journeys, he finished his commentary on Chumash, especially in Italy. And here he has his question. How do we justify Hashem telling Moshe to say in his name something that is a falsehood? That's not what God said. That's not what God wants. Hashem said to say something and quote him, but something that's not true. I don't want they to go, they should go for three days and come back. I want them to leave and never come back. Hashem told them to communicate something that seems so untrue. Akedas Yitzchak Sharlam and another great Spanish sage, Rabbi Yitzchak Arama, also from the same century, he says, He asks a question a little more respectfully. He says, it's not glorious, it's not dignified for God to behave this way. Drey cups are drey cups. How do you say a drey cup? All these words in Yiddish don't, don't work in English. It's not like there's no drey cups in English. But there's certain words you need Yiddish for. It's, there are drey cups in the world. There are people who if they could say it, who if, they, if they could lie, they won't say the truth. It's, 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 it's a pathology that some people have. Especially certain people who grew up in certain countries. I'm not going to elaborate. But they have been accustomed to lie. 
for, 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 diff- for different reasons. For different reasons. Sehalft wie Teutabankas. I can't translate that into English either. <laughs> it's not respectful for Hashem to do this. Beautiful words. Take them out with an uplifted arm from the beginning till the end. It says at the end in Rama. The children of Yisrael left Egypt Biyad Rama. Biyad Rama means with a stolz, with a sense of pride and dignity, with an uplifted hand. Became a skufa. They went proud. They didn't go like slaves who ran away in the middle of the night as fugitives from a prison. That's not how they left. They left Biyad Rama with a stolz. But this undermined the Biyad Rama. They knew we're not leaving with a stolz. Pari's going to find out, then who knows what's going to happen. I don't understand. This is God. He doesn't need to, he doesn't need to exploit Dreidlach. You're the creator of the world. You did everything so well in this story. Top notch. Eser. You get a ten, a hundred. Besides this, do the whole thing. But drama say, no, we're going. We're never coming back. Para, you like it? Good. You don't like it? It's fine. You could jump into the Red Sea. Which is what he did. Yeah. But the moment they heard Pyro was running after them, they panicked. They lost it. Devin Ezra gives an answer, but it's not, it's an answer, but it's not an answer. He says, Moshe never lied. Moshe just said, I have truth. We all know there's a difference between lying and not saying everything. If I tell you I want to leave for three days, I didn't say, I'm coming back. I want to leave for three days. Yes, I want those three days to last forever. But if I'm leaving forever, I'm also leaving for three days. In other words, Moshe didn't ever said, we're going for three days and we're coming back. He just said, we're going for three days. So the Ebenezer and others point this out. Moshe never said an untruth. He did not say the full story. Okay, that's one perspective. It leaves us wanting because why the need? Why the need for it? The Alshech, Reb Moshe Alshech from Tzvas, 16th century and already a generation before the Barbanel, who I mentioned in Spain, they both answer, a very simple answer. They say, this is what brought out the rishus of Parai. This story brought out the wickedness of Parai. Moshe, this is what the Alshech says, if Moshe would have said, we want to go free forever, I could understand the resistance. It's the old world, you have a lot of slaves, you have a big empire, you're a big king. Yeah, you're not the nicest guy in the world. It's hard to say yes. But a three-day holiday, this is our Russia Berusha. A three-day holiday, you won't let them go. He says, this is what made Paroi deserve all the plagues. Hashem precisely said this to show what a sadistic barbarian he was. If he would have come to him and said, we don't want to be here anymore, we're gone forever, we have a different land, okay. Party would still be wrong, but we can appreciate the resistance. He says, but if he disagreed time and time again to let them go for three-day holiday, this shows you what a sick man he was. What a narcissistic, sadistic, barbarian, dictator and tyrant he was. He deserved what he got. 
This man is not letting them go for three days. What is he going to let them go for 12 hours? Now, to take two million people out for 12 hours, by the time you go out and you come and you ever tried going on a Chalamaya trip with uh, two million children? By the time you go into the car, you're already coming back if you have 12 hours. You need at least a few days, right? <laughs> There's another answer. And this answer... I saw Rebel Khanans, this is a contemporary answer. I saw Rabbi Jonathan Sachs wrote this, Rebel Khanan Samet and others. And that is the fact that uh, Moshe knew who he's dealing with. And yeah, maybe Moshe and Hashem felt that when you're dealing with a swindler, when you're dealing with a tyrant, the regular laws of justice fall to the sidelines. Yeah, if I was be dealing with an honest person, with an upright person, of course I want to be transparent. But you're dealing with a person who's ready to take baby kids, infant children, and cast them into a Nile River. You're dealing with a sadistic murderer. You're dealing with an oppressor par excellence. You get whatever you can, however you can. If you got to swindle your way out, you swindle your way out. To put it in halachic terms, pikuach nefesh, you want to save people's lives? You don't say. There were philosophers who said that saying the truth is more important than life. You should die and not lie. But Judaism doesn't say that. If a person needs to save their lives and their lives of their spouses and the lives of their children, anything you can do, you do. And therefore Hashem told Moshe, this itself was a lesson. Tell him we're going for three days, who knows? Hashem Taka told Moshe, even that's not going to work. But the process, the way it was done was, let's ask him for something small, and we won't come back. I were lying to him, so be it. Who are you lying to? You're lying to a tzaddik? You're lying to a Russian Merusha, who wants to see you dead, who wants to exterminate a people, who if he had, had it all, all his way, there would be no Jews left? Yes, everything is permitted to save your life from such a monster. It's a very straightforward explanation. Indeed, Moshe never told him the truth. He did everything to minimize what they want, so Padre would feel better about it. Maybe, maybe the man will agree. And even at the end, that's what he said. He didn't want to take chances. I, Padre, was desperate. I'm still not going to take chances. Tell him a small thing. Let him agree. And you know what? We're going to deceive him. It's perfectly fine. That's another perspective. To enhance this perspective a little bit, Let's give context. This is not the first time we see deception happening on behalf of our people towards their enemies. In this case, Moshe towards Pare. If you read through Sefer Bereshis, we have quite a few cases of half-truths being communicated, if not even more than half-truths. You have, you have at least seven cases Case number one, as you pointed out, is Shechem. When the brother is told, Shechem, we're ready to intermarry with you. We're ready to live with you, but you have to be circumcised. It says clearly that they spoke b'mirma. Mirma is deceitfully. Their plan initially was, let them circumcise themselves. They'll be weak. Dina, before, no, Dina was abducted. Dina was kidnapped. Dina was still in the palace. How do we know? Because it says when Shimon and Levi killed Shechem, they took Dina and they left. Dina was never given back to her father. 
When Shechem took Dina, he kept her kidnapped in the palace. People don't realize that's part of the story. It's clearly in the story. So their initial plan was, let them be circumcised so they will not be able to defend themselves and Shechem when we come and liberate Dina. Yes, when you're dealing with a society that's ready to condone kidnapping and violating a young girl because the ruler is above the law, that's what you do. Shimon and Levi took her to the next step. They killed everybody. That's the next part of the story. But I'm saying even before that, that's number one. Next story. Very good. Three times do Avram and Yitzchak say that their wife is not their wife, their wife is their sister. Well, after Cain killed heavily, he said, am I my brother's keeper? They say that there was somebody that came into a zoo and he came to the cage where there was a big chimpanzee. And the chimpanzee had in front of him two books, a Bible, a Chumash, and Charles Darwin's Origin of Species. So the man asked the chimpanzee, what are you looking at? He says, I'm trying to figure out, am I my brother's keeper, or is my keeper my brother? So in any case, Cain lies after. But here we're talking about righteous people, I know last week we turned Cain into a very big soul. But at the surface, Avram twice says about Sarah, she's my sister. And there's a reason for it. Yitzchak does the same thing with Rivki. He comes to the Philistines. He says, she's my sister. When Abimelech says, why did you lie? Yitzchak says, Hashem Avram says, why did you lie? Avram, they ask Avram, he says, there's no fear of God here. Your minig is, you like a woman, you kill her husband, and you take the wife, because you're at Sadako, so you're not going to take a woman who's married, so you murder the husband, so she's single. Very righteous of you. In other words, I'm dealing with a society that I can't trust. Yes, I have to lie. Three times, three times the Torah tells the story. It's a very uncomfortable story. Sarah and Rivka are both presented as sisters, not spouses, which is not true. Or at least not fully true. Sarah was related to Avram Avinu, as Avram Avinu says. But still, it's not the true story. So you have three times there. You have the story of Shechem. You have Rivka, Yaakov Avinu, getting dressed in Esav's clothes. And Yitzchak says, Ba'achicha b'mirma. Your brother came deceitfully. Deceitfully. And this is all fixing the first nachash. Ba'anachash arum. When you're dealing with a snake... <laughs> If you ever saw how a snake walks, you know, they call it the serpentine gate. It looks like a beautiful, very elegant gate and dance, but it's lethal. It's venomous. When I'm dealing with a snake, as they say in English, you're dealing with a shark or you're dealing with a snake or with a crocodile, what am I supposed to do? You fight fire with fire? Yaakov Avinu dresses up like Esau. So you have Shechem, you have Yaakov and Esau, you have three times Avram and Yitzchok is already five times. Yes. Then you have, well, that's Lovin doing it to Yaakov. Right. Lovin is his people, but I'm talking about where you're talking about righteous people like Moshe Rabbeinu, but you have the story of Yaakov running away from Lovin. Yaakov never asked permission to leave Lovin. It says, by Yignoiv Yaakov is slave. Yaakov stole the heart of Lovin because he never told him that he's leaving. And Lovin pursued him. And Lovin said, Why didn't you tell me that you're leaving? And I would have made a whole concert. I would have sent you off with tambourines and with harps and with a whole concerto. 
And then Yaakov lets Halavan hear it. 20 years I haven't slept because of you. And you stole and you deceived me again and again. And now you really want to send me away with, with, with glory and with dignity. Here again we see a very similar, a very similar theme. Huh? Well, over there again, it's the prime minister of Egypt deceiving Binyamin with the Becher. Or Lavan deceiving Yaakov. I'm talking here the Tzaddikim of Bereshus. And then you have Yaakov and Esav themselves. Esav offers Yaakov to live together and travel together, right? And why Yaakov says, I'm sorry, my sheep are young, my children are young, I can't rush, I have to go. One day I'll come to your city. One day I'll come to you. Yaakov wasn't planning to come to Esau. Rashi says in the days of Mashiach, Yaakov will come to Esau. Here again, Yaakov knew his brother, and he knew it's volatile and vulnerable, and he didn't lie, but he certainly didn't say, Esau, I'm not interested in living with you, I'm not coming to you, I'm going my way. He said, one day, So we have at least seven instances Three times of Avram and Yitzchak. Story of Shechem is number four. Yaakov running away from uh, Lovin is number five. Yaakov dressing with Esav is number six. Yaakov telling Esav, I'm going to come to you one day. Number seven. All the same theme. Here I'm talking about, yes, here I'm talking about people who are doing the righteous thing, and in order to survive dealing with swindlers, they outsmart them by using methods that are not fully honest. That's the idea. What they did to Yaakov, that was a whole different situation. Yaakov wasn't, you understand what I'm saying? That's a whole different situation. Right. Tamar and Yehuda would be actually an eighth example. Tamar was a, right. But Tamar was in a very difficult bind, and she realized she has no way out because Yehuda was not letting her marry his third son. She was bound to his third son, Shayla, in the laws of Yibum before Matan Torah, but she was literally not free. And in her difficult situation, she also outsmarted Yehuda in quite a clever way, as we once discussed in the class of Yehuda. And Tama, thank you. That would actually be another example. What do all these points bring out? They bring out something very, very very, very telling. And that is, all the common denominator in all these cases is you're dealing with people who are somewhat powerless. And they're living in an age and in a climate of power. They are a small family, at best a small nation, in an age of empires, in the presence of dictators who think they're above the law. And I should mention this, just recently, Paul Johnson died. I don't know if you know who Paul Johnson was. He was one of the greatest historians of our time. He was not Jewish. He grew up and was a very, very devout left-wing atheist. And then he began to study the history of the Jewish people. And he wrote one of the best books on Jewish history from the perspective of a non-Jew called The History of the Jews by Paul Johnson. It transformed him completely. He became a devout Christian Gentile. But in his opening to the book, he says something very fascinating. And he says that the Jews had the genius of introducing ideas into history that completely transformed the fabric of humanity and society. 
He says, had there not been a Jewish people, maybe somebody would have stumbled upon these ideas. You can't know. And that means if it wouldn't have happened, we wouldn't have civilization as we know it. But it always takes a genius to invent an idea that later seems simple and obvious. But till that genius, nobody thought about it. He says, however you want to explain Jewish history, he says the contribution to society is unparalleled. And he gives many, many examples throughout his book. One of them is, he says, Jews were the first one who came up with an idea that nobody is above moral law. That was unheard of. There was always the exception, the king, the demigod, the prince who's above the law. The law applies to everybody besides me. Or as Orwell would say, in Animal Farm, everyone is equal. But some of us are more equal than others. So when you are a vulnerable family in an age where there are people who are above the law, and you have to survive, yes, you use your wits to survive. Yes, you sometimes do things that your own conscience would plague you, but I have no choice. So therefore, in most times, they will not tell lies, but they will create false impressions. I, the seal of God, is truth. It's truth. But I'm living in a false society. It's not how things should be. It's not how things should be. But before Jews have their own land, a place where they can defend themselves, where they are their own masters under God, before they have that independence, that autonomy, when people are in an impossible situation and they're forced to do things that are below their dignity in order to exist, we're pained by it. But we can't condemn it at all because the alternative would be something that is far more evil, which is the extermination of innocent people. Nobody should be forced to live a lie because the seal of God is truth. But when your people are being enslaved, when your male children and infants are being murdered, you have a duty to liberate them by any means possible. Moral violence and moral, moral violence is sometimes moral if you're battling immoral violence. And deception is sometimes moral if you're battling evil, sadism, cruelty. So when Moshe sees, after his first encounter with Parai, that things got worse and worse and worse, now they have to collect their own straw in order to finish their quota, Moshe is not going to take the risk of making it yet worse still. And Moshe will say, you know what, all I'm asking is for three days. And the point being is that in all these stories, the Torah is not justifying or encouraging deceit. On the contrary, the Torah is condemning a system in which telling the truth may put your life at risk. The Torah is showing how a society can become so corrupt that the last thing you want to encourage people to do is tell the truth. And what a powerful lesson that is when you create a system in which you tell people, you want to survive? No problem. But lie. I want to tell you a story that occurred a number of years ago. You may be familiar with the Claims Conference. Claims Conference is the organization that was created in order to negotiate with Germany on paying Wiedergutmachung, 
the what's called the reparations, money to restoration monies to Holocaust survivors. There was a big debate in Israel between Ben Gurion and Begin if Israel in the early fifties should take the money that Germany offered to build a state. Ben Gurion said yes, and he took the money. Begin said, "No way. This is the way that the Germans are going to try to gain forgiveness and and cleanse themselves." And throughout the years, there was a debate. But in reality, Holocaust survivors, some of your own families, received large sums of money of Jews who suffered under German tyranny during the Second World War. And there's an organization called Claims Conference. A number of years ago, there was a Jew who was a survivor. And you would fill out papers and documents and show what you had and what your family had. And if your family owned houses, buildings, factories, manufacturing companies. Some Jews, as you know, did amazingly well before the war in Germany and Austria and in the countries of Eastern Europe. There was one Jew who falsified documents about real estate that his ancestors owned in Eastern Europe and Germany before the Holocaust. And in lieu of that, he received astronomical amounts of money from the German government. The problem is, they caught him. They investigated, they felt something was suspicious, they caught him. And they arrested this Jew. One of the leaders of the claims conference was a Jew, some of you may have known him. I knew him, his name was Chatzkel Besser. Chatzkel Besser from 84th Street, the book, The Rabbi of 84th Street in Manhattan. Huh? On the west side of Manhattan. From Mishpachaya. Srili is his grandson, his son, Reb Shleimer from Passaic, his son. Reb Chatzkel Besser was a very, very special person. I knew him. He was uh, chairman of Aguda, of Aguda Sistral. He came from Radomske Hasidim. Uh, he was a very colorful and interesting personality, a great conversationalist. And he had a broad vision. He wasn't a tunnel vision type of personality. And he was a chairman of one of the leaders in the claims conference. So the family of this Jew phoned him and said, can you get him out? Can you get him off the hook? Reb looks into the case. And he says, what do you want me to do? What am I supposed to do? I feel terrible. But this man really fabricated documents and he lied. I mean, something really illegal happened here. I'm no big fan of the German government, but what, what am I supposed to do? They said, we don't know. Can you help? Well, he was having a breakfast with the German foreign minister a few days later. So he said, you know what? He'll see what he can do. They sat. They spoke about whatever they spoke about. And he brought up the case of this person. And he said, you know, he's a Holocaust survivor and he went through so much trauma and he lost his family. And He said, I understand. And he deserves the money and much more money. But, you know, he did lie and he did fabricate all these documents. Reb Chatzkel had an epiphany. And he turned to the foreign minister and he said, he lied, he lied. And he lied terribly. In fact, his lies were despicable and are despicable and they're embarrassing. But I want to ask you a question. Who taught him to lie? I want to tell you his story. When he was seven years old, 
he had to go into hiding. He had to get papers that testified that he was an Aryan. He was from the Aryan, pure German race. Khalilah Vachas, he wasn't a Jew. For years, he ran like a mouse, like a rat, from hiding place to hiding place with the fear that if anybody finds out his true origin and his true DNA and his true blood type, he goes straight to the gas chambers to breathe gas as his last breath and die, and then sent into the crematoriums. So a kid at the age of seven learned one truth in life. And what was the truth? You never say the truth if you want to stay alive. And you know what? He internalized that lesson to a despicable fault. And I agree. And now I ask you, who taught him to lie? And to his credit, the German foreign minister said, you're right. You're right. They let him go. They let him go. <laughs> this was Chatzkobes' brilliance. <laughs> And then I saw a line, a line of the Shalah, or Reuven with his brothers, you say. That's also, that's, that's number nine. Reuven told his brothers, let's not kill him, let's throw him into the pit. He outsmarted them. Huh? No, no, no. No, the flower, the, 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 the mandrakes weren't deceiving. The Shalah writes, we say in the Haggadah, Vayareyu Aysanu Hamitzrim. Literally it means, so Parshaski Savoy, the Egyptians afflicted us. Afflicted us. The Shalah says it means much deeper. They gave us a piece of their ra. They gave us a piece of their negativity. Not that they afflicted us, they ruined our lives. Sometimes you look at a person and you see that their behavior is truly, truly inappropriate. But you always have to ask a question. How did they develop this behavior? Was it not a survival skill at age three, four, five, six, seven, eight, knowing that if they don't do this, they will never be able to exist? This became the ultimate radical coping mechanism that is now destroying their lives. It doesn't justify it. It doesn't make it beautiful. It doesn't make it righteous, but it gives perspective and it allows you to have empathy. Empathy doesn't mean what you're doing is beautiful and kind and godly, but it does mean that I have to ask myself, are you not doing the best you can with the very limited and traumatic tools that you have in life? And by the way, when it comes to education, this is a critical, critical point. When we look at children's behaviors, teenagers' behaviors, we get angry, angry, angry. How can you do this to me? Stop, take a deep breath and ask, is this person not doing the best they can with the limited, broken tools that they have in life? And if I'm not ready to help them fix those tools, repair those tools, expand their horizons... I'm not really helping them ever change their behavior. Empathy brings you far more success than condemnation, dismissiveness, vindictiveness, and judgmentalism. It's hard because we're triggered. And when I'm triggered, I'm like, ah, I got it. 
Jews have been through a lot, and it affects them. Mitzrayim affected them. If you could remove the layers and see what's behind it, Reb Chatzkel Bessa told this minister, this boy wasn't born a liar. When he was two years old, he wasn't a liar. Something happened to make him feel that this is how you're supposed to live. You're supposed to lie. When I was a child, my mother told me, my mother grew up in Soviet Russia. Soviet Russia was a living Gehenna on earth. People don't realize it because Hitler eclipsed Stalin. But Stalin was a Russia Marusha like Hitler. And in fact, if I'm not mistaken, he killed more people than Hitler killed. So my mother told me, she said, growing up in Russia, we were always knew you never say the truth. And she said, you should realize this, Russians will always lie. Not because they're people who lie. She said, we grew up in an environment in the 1930s and 40s where if you said the truth, either you ended up in the gulag or somebody in the family was shot. Because what the KGB, what Stalin did was he convinced children to inform on their parents. If you informed on your parents, you were promoted in the Communist Party. If you informed on your brother, your sister, your father, your mother, your son... You got an amazing promotion, so Stalin destroyed the family unit. When there's no family, there's no trust. You can't trust your mother, you can't trust your brother, you can't trust your father, you can't trust your daughter. So who do you trust? You trust Beria, you trust Kaganovich. Who do you trust? Khrushchev, Andrapov, Brezhnev, Putin. Who do you trust? Who do you trust? You trust nobody, you don't even trust yourself. My mother said, You have to realize this. It's a big, it's a big nesoyin. It takes sometimes people decades to unlearn these qualities because it's a survival skill. It's already from seven years old. You don't say truth. You don't speak the truth. Now we know even in our own cultures, there are sometimes communities and societies where almost people learn if you say the truth, right? This won't work for you. That won't work for you. That won't work for you. This is what the Torah is teaching us in all these stories. When Avram is by the Plishtim or in Egypt, when Yaakov is dealing with an Esav, when Yaakov is dealing with a Lovan, when you're dealing with the violator Shem, when you're dealing with all these difficult situations and you're not living in an environment where dignity and goodness is respected. It's a sad condemnation of a society where people are forced to do things that are below, below their truth, below their dignity. So Yiddish guy that says the seal of Hashem is truth. Who will ascend to the mountain of Hashem and stand in His holy place? Somebody who has clean hands, a pure heart, who doesn't swear falsely, who's not deceitfully, the last piece of Shemayna Esra every day. Guard my tongue from toxicity and watch and, and, and protect my lips from speaking deceitfully. That's the mission statement of Judaism. Guard my tongue from evil. What the Torah is telling us in these eight or seven narratives in Bereshus and the next one in Shmois, Va'era, and Boyes, how much truth is connected to freedom. And how much falsehood is connected to subjugation and abuse and enslavement. Where there is freedom, there can be truth. 
where there is morality and truth, true morality, there can be truth. Otherwise, when I'm trying to survive under oppression and under lies, there is no truth. A society where people are forced to be less than fully honest in order to survive and not provoke more expression, more uh, oppression, is the kind of society that God says, I need to liberate you from this society. But now, you wanted to say something? I covered it, okay? To be fully alive is to be fully true. And to be fully alive is to be able to be free. And when I'm surrounded by a bunch of sharks and snakes, yes, I'm less than fully alive. I'm trying to survive. And I can't thrive. Yeah. 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 So basically, this explains the three days, really a theme that takes us through Bereshus and Shmois. And it shows us when you're in an environment, when you're dealing with a paray, you're dealing with a paray, Moshe says, you know what? I'm going to minimize our request. Maybe, maybe this will make it a little easier. Maybe. It still doesn't work until Pari is brought to his knees. And even then, Moshe doesn't want to risk it. Yes, I'm dealing with a crook and a liar and a killer. And I'm going to do anything to get my people, to set my people free. And God says that's exactly what you should do. But I want to take this one step deeper and come to our last point. And this brings it really from the political also to the very personal, emotional, psychological, and spiritual. And here, in your last piece in the source sheet, we're going to learn a piece from the Tanya. And it's very appropriate today, because today the 24th of Tevis is the yard site of the Balatanya. The author of the Tanya and Shulchan Aruch, of Liadi, who passed away, Chavdala Tevis, Tovkov Ayin Gimel, 1812 in the Ukraine. And in his magnum opus, Tanya, chapter 31, Pedeklam et Aleph, he gives us another very powerful perspective on this question. Take a look, it's the second to the last of your source sheets. Tanya, Why did Moshe say we're leaving for three days? If he would have said the truth, we're going out forever, we want to be free for eternity. He was brought to his knees anyway. So he answers, next paragraph. This is actually connected to the core of what it means to leave Egypt. It says that the nation escaped. And he asks the question we just asked. Again, he could have said the truth. Listen to his words. There was a negativity or toxicity in the souls of the Jewish people that was still potent in the left ventricle. There was a certain spiritual filth that only seized that matan Torah, the giving of the Torah. Yet they had an ambition to free their divine soul from the exile of unholiness, which is the impurity of Egypt, and to cleave to one is Tashem. In the future, when Hashem will remove the spirit of impurity from the world, when Mashiach comes, the prophet says in Yeshaya, you're not going to run. 
You're not going to run. The Pesach says, Beshuva v'nachas tivasheyun. You're going to come back, Beshuva, with serenity, v'nachas, with calm, with tranquility, with relaxation. There's two paradigms. There's the paradigm of the first ghoul of Egypt. They had to run. Kibarachan, they had to run. In fact, it says it was all bechipozoin. And this for a chaltam oisei bechipozoin. The puzzle says, when they ate the matzah at the first Seder night, it was done with a rush. There was a sense of haste, of urgency. We gotta get out. We gotta get out. We gotta get out. They ran away. Mashiach, the Navi Yeshaya says, you're not gonna run. What does this mean? Menusas from the word Vayonos, like it says by Yosef with Poitifra's wife, right? Vayonos, he ran away. Hayam Vayonos. The sea saw and fled. Menusa means you're not going to flee, you're not going to run. What is the Balatanya teaching here? He's teaching here about inner liberation. You know why Moshe had to tell Pari that they're leaving for three days? Not because he wanted to lie to Pari but because they had to run away from Egypt. They couldn't leave Egypt calmly. But how could they run away from Egypt when Pari gave them permission? So Moshe had to concoct an idea, Hashem had to concoct an idea, how do we phrase it in a way that we will have to run? How? If we tell Pari we're leaving for three days, and then we leave for more than three days, we're running away. In other words, it's not that Moshe said we're going for three days not to say the full truth. It's that Moshe understood that the paradigm of Exodus has to be kiborachom. You have to run. And therefore, he said it's going to be for three days. But why is that? Why do you have to run? Just do it calmly. Pari is anyway going to agree. Because there's two types of liberation in life. There's what's called Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, and there's what's called the ultimate Geula of Mashiach. In one it says, they fled, haste, rush, get, run. In the other one, Ruyik, Bakvem, calm, serene. What are these two paradigms? You see, you know the expression, right? You can take a Jew out of exile. It's hard to take exile out of a Jew. You could take a Jew out of Paray, but you can't always take Paray out of the Jew. You could take a Jew out of Mitzrayim, but it's not so easy to take Mitzrayim out of the Jew. They used to say about the Russians, you could take somebody out of Russia, it's hard to take Russia out of them. What's the point? This is what he's saying. When they left Egypt, it wasn't just Paray who was screaming, you ran away. You know who else was screaming you ran away? Themselves. There was an inner voice of Mitzrayim that becomes part of me. And it says, you don't belong there. You belong here, you loser. Hey, slave, come back! When he says the Tumah of Mitzrayim was still part of them, it means the voice of Paroi was internalized. Sometimes I go through situations in life where it's not that somebody hurt me And that's the end of the story. No, I internalized it. That's really the difference between experiencing pain and becoming broken through the pain. The fact that I experience pain and I have a story, I say, what did you say? Yes. If I could say, I'm a slave because you're a perpetrator, then I'm not a slave. You want me to be a slave. The moment I could go free, I'm free. But when I start believing you, now the perpetrator is me. 
Why is it, for those of you who have nightmares, or you had nightmares as children, I want you to think for a moment about those nightmares that you had or you may still have. Did you ever, ever completely get away from the perpetrator in your dream? And then you woke up and it was like, I'm a chaya. And the answer is you could speak almost to anybody who has nightmares and they'll tell you. You thought you got away and at the last moment, at the last moment they somehow emerge with their gun or with their knife or with their, or with their sadism. And as you're about to perish, you wake up. And the question is, why don't you ever have a nightmare where they're gone, you're safe, and you say, okay, and now I lived happily ever after, and you wake up, Maidani. And the answer is, because who do you think is chasing you in your nightmare? Yourself. And you can't run away from yourself. The nightmare is just depicting an internal fear I have. It's using another person to depict my own fear, but I'm being chased by me. If I'm being chased by me, that me did not disappear at the end of the nightmare. That's the condition of Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim. In a very practical way, sometimes people do a lot of work on themselves. And they want to celebrate their serenity. And then suddenly, your teenage son or daughter says something to you. And you're triggered in such a powerful way. And you feel this setback. You almost fell back 10 years of your work. You're so upset. You're so angry. You're again feeling lonely, misunderstood, helpless, isolated. And the worst and the tempting thing to do, and the worst thing to do is delegitimize all your inner work and tell yourself, the devil has won. I am a traumatized slave. Why? Because Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim always comes with a condition. And that is, there's a voice inside of you who says, you don't belong in freedom. You're a broken, miserable person. The world hates you, your kids hate you, your family hates you, you hate you, for sure God hates you. You're un- misunderstood, you're misunderstood, you're a Achmanus case, you're a loser. In other words, you're a slave. And what do you have to do at that moment? At that moment, I have to run away. What does it mean to run away? To run away is, I have to be able to look at that voice and say, I get it. Hi, Paroi. I understand. You have still internalized this truth that I'm a slave and you're coming up. But you know what? I'm fine. You're here. I know who I really am. And I have to continue my march towards freedom. There comes a time in history when you don't have to run. Not that you don't have to run from Pare outside. You don't have to run from Pare inside. Because the Pare inside is also transformed. You don't have to run from anybody. All your pieces are working together. But don't wait till that moment to be able to live a free life. Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim is not worthless just because they ran just because they escaped. It's the beauty of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim that despite the fact 
that there is identifiable pain. But despite the fact there's an identifiable wound, despite the fact that there's a voice inside of me that schleps me back 20 years or 50 years and wants to knock a hammer over my head and put me back in hiding and comes up with all of these thoughts, You'll never be free. You'll be miserable. This will never succeed. You'll never have a good relationship, not with your husband, not with your wife, not with your kids, not with your grandkids, not with yourself, not with God. You're just destined to be a depressed, miserable, impoverished soul. And you look at that voice and you say, Paroi, you want a cup of coffee? You need a cold shower? You need a cold bath? You need a massage? I get you. I get you. You want me back in Egypt. You want to convince me that I'm supposed to be a slave. And Pari will answer, it's not me, it's you. It's not me, it's the truth. That's the Pari inside. Pari inside doesn't call himself Pari. Pari inside calls himself Y.Y. Jacobson. Or whatever name you want to use. Pari doesn't call himself Pari. If he would call himself Pari, he wouldn't be such a Pari. Pari calls himself the king. Pari calls himself you. I'm just talking for you. I'm just saying the truth. Everything else is delusions. You have to be able to have the courage to be able to stare Pari in the eyes and say, I know you're going to be chasing me. It's fine. I could run. <laughs> I'm strong. I'll run. And Pari will say, you're not running anywhere. You're not running anywhere. You know you're not liberated. And you have to be able to look at that voice and say, yes. My Mashiach has not fully, fully enveloped my life. There are still pieces that are triggered. There are still pieces that are broken. There are still pieces that have setbacks. There are still pieces that will take me back to a place where I am a victim of emotional oppression. Yes. And you know what? I have to respect that that's part of my redemption. Moshe is teaching the Jewish people. Geulah Mitzrayim was a real redemption, even though we ran. From who did we run? From ourselves. That's why he told Pari three days. If he would have told Pari we're going out for eternity, there would be no escape. There would be no protest. There would be no Pari chasing them. But the paradigm of Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim is that there comes a point in our life where I have to tell myself it's time to run away from the voice. Not by delegitimizing the voice and making believe it doesn't exist. On the contrary, by understanding that that's part of my liberation. And yet, there comes a time in history when we go beyond that, when we're ready to graduate that. And you have to be very honest with yourself because we fluctuate back and forth. But there comes a time in history when you don't want to run away. You don't want to have to escape anything. You want to ultimately include anything, everything, And this is actually what we're now experiencing in people's psyche. You know, there was a time, we spoke about this a few times, people struggle so much with who was right, the previous generation, this generation, our mothers, our grandmothers, our children. And everybody had challenges and problems, many of them much worse than us. And yet the motto of so many was, put one foot ahead of another foot and just march and don't look back. Don't be like Lloyd's wife. Think my great-great-grandfather didn't need therapy? You don't look back. There's time you leave and go. And if you look back, you become salty. And very bitter. And nobody wants to eat salt. 
unless you put a little salt into the salad. But if you put too much salt into the salad, nobody's going to eat the salad and nobody's going to eat the soup. Stop looking back. And then there's a generation of exposure therapy and look at it and look back and understand and feel that the other one is completely out for lunch. One group says you're just a bunch of spoiled, self-centered narcissists and the other one says you're just busy with repressing and burying everything because you don't want to deal with it. But we have to make shalom bias between generations. The truth is there's two paradigms of Geula. And they're both very, very special and very powerful. And you have to know where you're holding and what you're ready for. And you can't, this is not a, a show, this is a very deep internal process. Sometimes I'm ready for Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, which is big. But sometimes my system says, now you're ready for ultimate Geula. In the paradigm of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, there's a pare inside that will keep you hostage. And you need to run. You don't have to deny, you don't have to repress. That's never a good idea, I don't think. You have to be able to identify and see it and run. And you know what? That's powerful. It's redemption. Because the Tumah of Mitzrayim is inside of me. It's part of my system. I have to be able to humbly acknowledge that. I have left Egypt, but Egypt has not left me. And every stage of the game, Egypt will rear its head and say, come back, loser or whatever the oisius are, whatever the language is. Come back, victim. Miserable person. You see nothing is working. You see everybody still hates you. You see you're not a success story. You see how nothing is helping. Whatever the language it uses, but it summons you back to enslavement. Back to self-loathing, self-shame, self-guilt, and endless self-mercy because I'm so incapable and inept. I am so broken to the point that I'm invested in being broken because that's my only source of validation and the ability to be able to say you know what Parai scream as much as you want to scream I get it but I will not allow you to define my values to define my behavior to define my thoughts words and actions there comes yet a deeper stage a deeper stage in life that's ready for complete transformation and that's when the voice of Pare rears its head. And as the Tanya says, in the time of Gula, the time of Mashiach, you don't run. You say, you know what? I'm done with running. <laughs> I'm done with escaping. I want to see the pnimius of everything. I want to see the truth of all my emotions. I'm ready to put my inner Egypt under a magnifying glass and expose it to what it's really, really about. And I may discover some very, very powerful, sweet truths that what I thought was really such an evil part of me was really maybe a protector who was simply trying to help me protect myself and survive under very difficult circumstances. And really it needs compassion and empathy, understanding what it was doing so that it could be sublimated. And when it becomes sublimated, it's not my enemy it's my ally. And if it's my ally, I don't have to run. I don't have to flee. I can't do that always. Sometimes the voices are too powerful and I'm too angry and overwhelmed. And that's when I have to say, continue leaving Egypt. Don't go back. But there comes another point, a deeper place, where I can actually look at everything in my life, including all those toxic voices that are driving me crazy. 
And if I could really expose them to their own pnimius, what are they really looking for? How did they develop? What are they trying to protect? What are they trying to say? What burden are they really, really carrying? What is behind their intensity and aggression? And I may realize that it's like wax or butter that melts in a frying pan. And when I can give them that empathy and understanding, they melt in a frying pan. And they say, you know what? We're just very hurting children. We're hurting children. And if you can really protect you and all of us, and you could show us that redemption can set into your nervous system, we'll be here together with you. And all together we will go free. Not through running away. With a sense of holistic tranquility, serenity, and wholeness. May we all be able to experience it individually and collectively. Amen. Thank you very much. Have a beautiful week. Next week we're on 9.30 a.m. Be'ezer Hashem. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.